Good day everyone, you're listening to Time for Your Hobby, and this is episode 98, Can You Feel the Electric Flow? I'm your host Alex, and today I have the honor to have Alex. It's not myself, I say that a lot, it is not myself, it's another Alex. This show just loves a bunch of Alexes. How you doing? Pretty good, are you? I'm doing good, uh, you know, just, this is pretty relaxing, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to do this episode. It's always great to talk to another Alex, There's, it's never a dull moment. Nope, nope. There's a lot of us. Yeah, not not too much. There's just enough. That's the that's the correct word. Right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I would say the same. Yeah, I remember your episodes about uh, beer and brewing, and you had two marks. I I think something like that. Like they, they shared a name. So I think our patterns in terms of names. And yeah, two mats. One they both had beer interests. So it's kind of like, you know what? It's a mat thing. And you know what? Music is an Alex thing apparently. So because you know you and I we love music. And speaking of which, we're going to be talking about music today. But before we do that, yeah. who is Alex? So, and by the way, my name, my last name is Enkerly, uh, E-N-K-E-R-L-I. I'm pretty transparent about things like that. So uh, I know that most of your guests don't talk about their day job too much, but I love what I do a lot. So I, I'm an anthropologist by training. And I'm an ethnographer by, by trade, and I work for the Canadian government now, but I, it's my 28th job so far. And uh, I like to collaborate with different people about different things. And obviously, uh, what uh, brings us together today is to talk about electronic musicing, which is something that I care a lot about. Oh, we're going to definitely jump into that. I, I'm so curious on what that is. And I'm sure everybody listening, they saw the title, like electronic musicing. What is that? Well, before we do that, I know people will look you up and you sound like a very delightful person. So where can people find you online? So as I said, my last name, uh, you know, I'm pretty upfront about this and I have many accounts with my last name itself because there's 15 of us in the whole world, basically. So it's, I'm easy to find, but in terms of electronic music game, the easiest way to find uh, those things uh, separately, uh, I use the, the term Sith Breath in one word, uh, because I play wind controllers, so uh, like electronic saxophone and things like that. So Synth Breath on Twitter and on SoundCloud, I'm easy to find there. Well, perfect. I put that all in the description below so people can come find you and show, of course show some support, you know, because you know, showing support is always good, right? I, 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 heard, yeah. I heard that, yeah. <laughs> but today, yes, the key topic is electronic musicing. Do you mind giving a definition of what that is for people who might not know what it is? Yeah. So musicking as a term, like people say, oh, it's not English. Actually, it has been English for quite a while. And Christopher Small is a scholar who, who revived that term to mean any kind of participation in music. In his case, it went all the way to tearing tickets uh, going to a concert. That's part of musicking because it's activities that are related to the musical uh, events and in terms of electronic musicing, uh, in my case, it really is about the participation in music that has to do with technology to a certain extent. And to me, a big concept for me as a scholar actually is technological appropriation. So when I talk about electronic musicing, it's a shorthand to say any kind of approach that people use to participate in music using technology of any kind. 
I used to call it digital musicking because a lot of the technology that I'm interested in is digital. But there's actually a huge divide in that scene between analog and digital. So now I call it electronic and it really is what it is. So it can be synthesizers, it can be computer software, uh, but it can be all sorts of things with electric guitar pedals, you know, uh, anything that you can use. And people will do something that's called circuit bending. So they will use a, an old toy, they tear it apart, and they solder things in a different way so it will make noises that are electronic in nature. Uh, and it becomes a sound source, like a synthesizer, but it wasn't meant to be that. So electronic music is any kind of involvement in music through electronic technology that is so cool and you know what i i am the same wagon as you like i use a my little mpk 25 to produce yeah, uh, yeah. instrumentals and stuff like that and i love messing around sometimes i don't even create anything i just play around play around with the keys and just make random sounds and melodies and just say all right not recording it just doing that i so i completely understand where you're coming from with this and it i find it cool that the idea of some people just being so creative they can take any type of object, like I'm looking, I have a hammer in front of me and duct tape. I'm like, you know what? I could probably make an oh, awesome sound with that. I don't know how duct tape would make a sound with a hammer, but I'm saying the the idea. <laughs> Ask Andrew Huang. Uh, there's this uh, guy from Ottawa originally, actually. Uh, he's a well-known YouTuber uh, who started playing with all sorts of things. Like he did one for Canada Day a couple of years ago that's using all sorts of Canadian things, including a bag of uh, poutine sauce and uh, <laughs> you know some chips and... Uh, hockey stick and certainly duct tape he's used in the past like just tearing apart duct tape and then he processes the sound and all of that and you said that you're not creating like you you slipped it in there it's like well it is creative right but you don't create something that you keep i understand the difference right it's it's pretty important and for me the, the, my reason to emphasize the musicing aspect is that it's about being playful. So playing with music instead of necessarily playing music itself. It's not performance, but it is creating. It is creative and it's very open-ended. And uh, so coming back to the idea of using objects, what kind of objects have you used, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I had... I haven't yeah, used uh, that many objects per se. Like that's less my my thing. Mm. Like for Enru Hong, uh, to to some extent, you know, people might perceive it as a shtick. Uh, for me, it's like, yeah, I'm interested in that. That I can use uh, samples from that that have been recorded with different kinds of objects in the real world. Uh, there are full libraries of folly sounds, and you know, I've used that. Otherwise. Instead of specific objects, it's more about the soundscape. I've done field recordings in the past, partly because I'm an anthropologist, is that in anthropology, we do that. And I've done that for research in West Africa. I was doing field recordings, including of uh, hunters' music in Mali. Uh, I was going to those ceremonies and, and recording in the field. But it can be just the soundscape itself, what happens around me, and it sounds very different. Uh, and these days, people do that all around the world. There's a project called uh, Cities and Memory, I think it's called, uh, based in the UK, I think, but it sounds from around the world. It's not the only project like this, but they will record all sorts of different sounds like uh, clapping for healthcare providers. 
uh, for all the work they do. And it, the sound is not necessarily different from other claps, but there's meaning to it that's pretty good. So it's less about the objects in that case, but it's more about listening to the non-musical stuff or stuff that is not meant to be music. And that's certainly something uh, that is part of my practice in a way. And in a way, it's basically just thinking outside the box. You don't have to be restricted to an actual instrument to make music. You can use literally anything. It's kind of like uh, using a rubber band to make the rubber band band. Yep. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And that can be, again, it can be a shtick. It can be a gimmick. It can be silly. And silliness is fun, mm -hmm. you know. When you do it for yourself, it is freeing, especially I am a trained musician. I did, I, I went to music school uh, and I play saxophone. So when I go to these other things, I don't have the same expectations, right? I don't have to perform. I don't, it doesn't have to sound good in the same way. And that's very freeing. No, I, you know what? I respect like your outlook on it. Like you have that actual like study of music from a technical level. And then you're like, you know what? I love the opposite of like the non-technical, just the, I wouldn't call it sporadic, but like the adventurous aspect, like trying something new. And speaking of which, this must have a beginning. How did you get introduced to electronic musicing? Yeah, so there's two main phases to that. So the first one was that I did go to music school uh, in college in Quebec, uh, which is between high school and university. So we have uh, this here in Quebec. Uh, that we call CJEP, and I went to music school specifically. I was full-time in music, and in fact, I was working for school 90 hours a week, so 30 hours of practice, 30 hours of classes, including band rehearsals, and 30 hours of studying. So I was enmeshed in music, like I was breathing music for that time. And one of the courses I took from the very first semester was MIDI Studio. And that was in 89 that I started that. And uh, at the time, so MIDI is a protocol uh, for digital interfaces, um, but it's also used with analog gear. And it, it had come out six years before that. So it's been, you know, uh, almost 40 years already. And it was the name of the studio, which is a little bit silly in retrospect. Like it sounds quaint because you wouldn't call it that now, but it was about electronic music from a very experimental side. So what we did as the work we were doing for the course was very experimental. It was inspired by Samba schools, which I found I'm a teacher. I've, I've been teaching at uh, different universities and such, and I, I'm still influenced by that approach to learning, is that in Samba schools in Brazil, uh, you, when you prepare for carnival, Everyone does something different side by side, and you're kind of free to explore. You can ask questions. You can ask for feedback, you know, you know ask other people for feedback. And there's this kind of, uh, yeah, you're building something. It's productive, and there's a goal, and you won't, you know, it's kind of a competition, in fact. So you're... Uh, your team, uh, your Samba school is uh, competing with other schools in a way, but at the same time, within that context, you don't feel the competition. So it was a great way to get introduced to electronic music, including their historical aspects and all of that. I said stuff for, you know, contests about electronic music, but I really mean electroacoustic music at the time. So it was pretty heady, conceptual 
and all of this. Uh, and Montreal has a great scene. So that was in Montreal, and I'm, I'm back in Montreal as of uh, a month ago. Uh, not even. And uh, Montreal has a great electronic music scene. I've talked to people all around the world, like people talk about Montreal before they talk about New York City in some cases. Maybe LA, but it's Berlin, Montreal, maybe LA. Uh, and even then, it's less for electronic music than music in general. Uh, there, there's a great, great scene here. And I was connected to that. So that, that was a great introduction. And then the second introduction is that I got reacquainted with electronic music a few years ago. And the context was a little bit funny, is that I started playing with uh, some uh, small computers that are called the Raspberry Pi. So it's $35, either US or Canadian, like uh, they have sales once in a while, it's $35 Canadian for a little Linux-based computer. So it can be used as a server, it can do very neat stuff. And there's uh, music affordances. There are ways to do music with it, including a program on there that's called Sonic Pi. And I started exploring it at the time. And, you know, it connected me back with a lot of what I had learned 30 years ago, 30 years prior. Uh, and it's, uh, it's become something of a research project for me. But the research project was an excuse to take on the hobby and vice versa, right? The hobby was an excuse to do the research project as well. So I got reacquainted with Electronic Music King, I would say 2015, maybe late 2014. So uh, now we're in 2020. So, you know, it's been a few years and uh, the past few years has been really interesting in terms of getting reintroduced to this because the scene has changed a lot. I missed out on a lot of developments uh, that happened in between those two periods of time, between the early 90s and, you know, five years ago, there's been a lot of stuff happening. <laughs> yeah. So I'm discovering all of this. And that's, that's why I find it interesting that it's, there are those two phases. So actually speaking about the discovering aspect, do you see yourself like, did you see an evolution of your style of electronic musicking or is it still very similar to what it was when you first started? Well, I don't have a style. <laughs> <laughs> so I explore a lot. I explore different tools. I explore different methods, different approaches, different techniques. I listen to a lot of stuff. So when I see musicking, I don't necessarily mean only producing music or doing music or creating music or it's also listening to podcasts, watching videos, reading about what people do in electronic music. And that has changed my whole perspective on so many things, including sounds themselves. So what has evolved is that I'm getting closer to having not a style per se, but a mastery of some of the tools and maybe a proficiency in some ways to do things that are more recognizable as things I like, but it's very far from having a recognizable style. Like there's very few connections between the things that I do, but there clearly is a progression. Like when I listen back to things that I, I've done two years ago, I like them, I enjoy them, but I'm like, oh, now I can do so much more. Partly because I bought a lot of stuff. So I have a lot of things that I can do that I couldn't do before. And, um, okay, so another question we talked about, you were talking about it a little before about the software you're using. What other yeah. types of software do you use for creating, or yeah, creating your electrical music? 
Yeah, so I have a lot. And what's uh, people talk about gas, the gear acquisition syndrome. And typically, it's about hardware, that you buy a lot of hardware, don't have enough room, your partner doesn't like it because, you know, it's costly, but also it takes room. And you feel guilty because you don't go back to that one synth you bought <laughs> two years ago because you thought it was a good idea. I do a little bit of that with hardware, but I do a lot of that in software. One of the problems with that is that on iPad, especially even more than on iPhone, actually. It's funny because, you know, there are many, many, many more iPhones in the world than iPads, but electronic musicking has been mostly happening on iPads. And on Android, it's almost non-existent for, for technical issues. So on iPad, the problem I have is that there's a lot of cheap and very, very high quality software there. There are hundreds of plugins that I have that I've bought or that I got for free. And altogether, it's not that much money compared to, you know, uh, any kind of professional synth. I probably paid less than people would uh, would pay on one shot without blinking an eye. And it's, it's kind of overwhelming. So I have my favorites contextually. Like sometimes I like this one plugin or this other plugin. And otherwise, I mentioned Sonic Pi, which is actually a programming environment for music. So it works on any system, well, not on any system, but it works on desktops. Uh, so on Mac, Windows, and uh, Linux. So Mac OS, uh, Windows, and Linux. And it's completely open source. And it's uh, a version of Ruby, the, the programming language that you can use to make music. And in a way, I would say it my, it's my favorite. Not that I spend the most time in it or that I do the most of, of my stuff in it, but I've used it a lot and it's really opened my ears. It's ear opening, like eye opening for, for sight, but for sound, it's really ear opening. And also it's really been part of my workflow. Like it fits the way I like to work sometimes when I want to do something that's yeah, let's call it um, not only experimental, but maybe conceptual or trying to explore something pretty specific, like I have an idea in mind. It's not just noodling around, although I can do that as well uh, sometimes with Sonic Pi. It's more that I have an idea in mind, and I really enjoy that. And there's a great community around it, uh, and it's pretty cool. Otherwise, on the desktop, like people use a lot of digital audio workstations. Uh, among the best known uh, are things like Logic Pro 10 uh, and Ableton Live and uh, Pro Tools and things like that. But my favorite DAW, Digital Audio Workstation, UW, is Bitwig Studio, which is from former Ableton engineers and other people created it. And it's awesome because you, you there's a modular environment, like all sorts of modules you can put together to create your own plugins in a way. And they reside internally, and you can change everything with everything. Like, I don't want to get too geeky, but you, <laughs> no, this you is your can, episode. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, so you can send something that's the the volume of a sound that will come in that will send some different notes to something else, and you decide how you want to do it, or you can create a sound that will change just you know over time, under the specific criteria and so on. And it's very easy to use, to learn on its own. And it's 
in a way less expensive than equivalent elsewhere. Like there are other pieces of software that are less expensive than this, but this was a good investment for me, especially as I said before about the excuse of doing research. Like, yeah, that's kind of an investment. I'm not getting a grant to do this research project, but I'm funding my own research to explore these things and I can show off how it works to others. And that's something that I do tend to do. The one thing you said that was pretty cool is that Bitwig has this feature that you can create your own sounds. And I was wondering, has there ever been a sound in your mind that you just weren't able to find anywhere, even though let's say Bitwig you can create, but you're like, I really want to. And the follow-up question to that is, would you create your own plugin anytime soon? Yep, I did. Oh. (laughs) Uh, Well, so I did with a very simple thing. Simple in some ways. <laughs> so when I did, I went to music school in college, uh, there was something that already existed, actually, from even the 60s. Uh, it descended from something from the 60s. It's called C sound. So the letter C and sound in one word. And it still exists. It's still being developed. At the time, it was only to prepare kind of a little program that will produce a sound. And it will, you know, do the processing in, in the background, and then you get the sound from the computer later on. Originally, it would take days, maybe. Like you would send a punch cards, <laughs> you know, and it would you would take days to create a different sound. And so, C sound now you can use in real time. You can produce sounds in real time, and it can produce any kind of sound. So I did create a few plugins with that. I find it a little bit hard to learn as a programming language because that's mm-hmm. what it is. But I did create a few little plugins for my own sake uh, that I have used that allowed me, in this case, not to create sounds that I couldn't create otherwise, but to to make it my own. I told you about uh, technological appropriation. To me, it's to make things my own, to make the technology my own, but also to make it appropriate to my context. So, as I said, I use electronic saxophones, wind controllers. So, things that respond well to breath is what I was exploring in that case. So, I am uh, creating little plugins here and there, and I do want to do more of that in the future. There are so many options, and I'm still not quite decided as to what I'll stick to to create plugins. But uh, the plugin I would use doesn't really exist. So, going back to the sounds that I want to to play, well, as a woodwind player, what I find pretty difficult is that to get a fairly convincing brass sound, it's not too hard. To get fairly convincing guitar sounds or piano sounds or so on, it's not too hard. But to get a woodwind sound that I find satisfying, it's actually pretty difficult. And I found a few of those. Uh, My favorite patch ever, uh, it's in something... So my favorite sound in the sense that uh, not just one sample of sound, but a sound I can play with. So a patch in um, a plugin called Reactor that comes from a German company called Native Instruments. And uh, it's an ensemble that they call like a patch uh, that's free. That's called Civil Wood Tenor Sax. And I really, really enjoy playing with it because it's the kind of tenor saxophone sound that I would like to have. When I play tenor saxophone, I enjoy my sound, uh, and I've heard myself in recordings and such, and I enjoy it, but when I play with that sound, it's what I have in my head, right? So this is kind of, the, the, the extension of that is what I want to get. It can be with other woodwind sounds, 
uh, including oboe is one also that I enjoy quite a bit. Uh, so I have some synthesizers, both in software and in hardware, that do what is called physical modeling. And uh, so it takes all the acoustic principles behind the sound of an, an instrument, and it tries to produce not the sound itself, but the way the sound is produced. So the size of the tube itself, the cylinder through which you, you know, breathe some air, you know, you blow some air in a tube. Well, the, the size and the dimensions basically of that tube really matter a lot. So physical modeling is based on things like that. And then your tongue position on the reed uh, and the, the type of mouthpiece and all of those technical things. And it's fascinating what people tend to go uh, with when they use physical modeling is to try to produce real instruments, right? You want to make it sound like a real tenor sax or a real alto sax, which is my main instrument typically, uh, at least that I own as an acoustic instrument or oboe or guitar and so on. And it's not necessarily satisfying in terms of, oh, I don't recognize at all that it's not a real instrument. Because samples can do that, but what is really, really satisfying with physical modeling is that it responds the same way as an instrument. It might be an instrument that you would never have heard in your life, something that's in between a trumpet and noble. Like the sounds are very different, but it responds in a way that you go like, oh, I can do this. This is new. And it sounds organic, natural in that sense. So that's very satisfying, and I want to explore that more. But the actual sound, apart from uh, Silverwood, tenor sax from Chet Singer, which, you know, other people don't necessarily like it. There's this guy who's all about, who creates samplers, basically, and he's like, oh, you know, physical modeling is not good because it doesn't reproduce uh, with high fidelity, this kind of thing. Well, maybe not, but it's actually very powerful in terms of the uh, the subtleties of what you can do with it, the way it responds. But that's, I find that really cool, the idea that you can produce these organic sounds of instruments, like you said, that you might have never heard of, but you're like, this is what I've been missing in my life. It's amazing how just creative a person can be and say, you know what, I'm going to combine this and this and create something completely new. That is, that's, uh, man, now I have a bunch of random sounds in my head. I'm like, could that be made? And I'm, I know the answer you're going to say, tell me is, yeah, that can be made. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because there are things that are extremely easy to make, trivial, well-known. And if you think about the acoustics themselves, like part of this, when you get technical about it, even though it's a hobby, it's fun to get into the technical details. Like it's a way to learn about the world, right? And there are things that are very easy to reproduce. There are things that the human ear picks up that are extremely subtle. And when you look at the signal itself, like you record the sound and you look at that sound with instruments, it's hard to pick up that subtlety, but the ear does pick it up. And it's not that it's impossible to pick it up with uh, technical tools, like with instruments, but the ear is so fine-tuned to some subtleties, and speech sounds are like that, right? The human language, like, obviously, and, and I'm a linguistic anthropologist, so I care a lot about speech sounds, and we're really good at picking up so many different things. 
when when you get to oh yeah it can be reproduced but as you probably know it's very hard to get speech that sounds very natural well it's the same thing for a lot of music like you can create something that sounds musical it can still sound contrived even if you don't know that it's artificial it still doesn't sound as satisfying and sometimes it's so subtle that you don't even think about it consciously and and that's part of the discovery for me is that some of the effects it's not even the sound itself it's the relationship between what you do and the sound that is produced so latency is one like the the, the amount of time that it takes for you know a, a tool to produce a sound if it's too long, that becomes very annoying, right? Imagine pressing a key and then it says two seconds later that a sound will happen, like that wouldn't work. At the same time, I know that my threshold is very, very high. I can get a very high latency, but at the same time, so, so I'm not bothered when it takes more time uh, between something that I do and the sound to, to change. But when the latency is very low, when I do something indirectly, I hear right away, and it's milliseconds, obviously, right? It's really, really uh, uh, such a subtle thing that can be measured, but my brain is not in the measurement mode. It's more in the, ah, that feels good. <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of like... Um... It's really hard to explain this, but it's kind of like CGI. When you, you you know there's something wrong, you just can't put your finger on it, but you see CGI, you're like, that doesn't look real, but I can't put my finger on it. Subconsciously, you can notice it. Yeah. So the Uncanny Valley, right? Specifically for CGI, they talk a lot about that, is that if it's too close, but not quite, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that doesn't feel so good. But then what I'm... Uh, thinking about is really the effect of when it gets in line, when it's there. It's like, oh, now the illusion is real. And it's not <laughs> even an illusion anymore, right? So it's beyond the illusion. It's in the, wow, this is very satisfying. This is the experience that I wanted to have. Yeah, and it makes you appreciate the song for what it is without trying to look for the imperfections. Because once you notice it, that's the only thing you'll notice. It's like a, a clock in a room. Like you hear, that's the only thing you're going to focus on. But uh, on that, what would you say is the best part about electronic musicking for you on a personal and emotional level? Yeah, so there are, it's a combination of three things. So all the benefits of music, I do enjoy music tremendously. They change my life. Like there's, there's a soundtrack to my life. <laughs> so I will listen to things and I would get to tears while in the, I'm in a bus, right? Uh, it's, you know... And sometimes repeatedly, like I will just bring back that piece of music and I listen to it again and suddenly I'm crying again. And I'm not sad or anything like that, but it's just the beauty of it. So the experience of the music itself, plus the fact that you're making your own, right? You have your own means to, to do your own music. Like uh, way back when Bobby McFerrin had a song, I'm My Own Walkman. So he was producing his own music because, you know, uh, so that's the same satisfaction that you get when you bake your own cake instead of you know, buying one or, you know, even the Ikea effect, like you buy stuff, you know, in separate parts, but you put it together, you feel satisfied because you did it. And the third part of that effect through electronic musicing is that you're discovering something. It's something that 
possibly didn't exist before. It's hard to tell because possibly every sound has been heard before. But you're discovering. So I'm a researcher, and that's kind of something that I want to go through. So to me, a hobby is something where you spend more money that you, than you're making out of it. I don't care so much about the financial aspect, but you know that's, some, that's a difference that I notice a lot when people have a hobby. They don't necessarily think of like, I'm investing so I can make that money back. The, the return on investment is not in money, it's in enjoyment. So that, to me, is what a hobby is about. The fact that I'm doing research with the same thing, I'm investing you know, a fair amount of money in this, in this hobby, and I'm not making any money from it. Like I've done some workshops. I mentioned Sonic Pi, and the part of the satisfaction of teaching kids and adults, the worst part was teaching teachers, because teachers are hard to teach. Like they, 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 they will often go like, why don't we try this other thing? It should work this way. I'm like, come with me, like go along for the, for the ride. And, and then we'll discuss the other things. But teaching through uh, Sonic Pi, for instance, was tremendous because I'm discovering things from their ears. The learners hear things in a way that I wouldn't hear them. You know, and also the discovering in that case, programming, uh, computer programming and uh, computational thinking. And that's tremendous in terms of the the depth of understanding you can get. And it's also very important to be open minded when it comes to this, especially you can't just be closed minded. Yeah. And uh, this is a really odd question. I didn't write this down, but has it ever happened to you that you created a melody or sound set and then you realized that you did you copied something else? Yeah. So. Not really, and because it happens while I'm doing it, right? So I'm playing something, I'm like, uh, yeah, that's imitative, which <laughs> is actually fine in terms of this is a hobby. I'm not trying to create a track from for somebody else. You know, most of the stuff that I create, I don't put online. I put a lot of stuff online, which are experiments. Uh, or, or excerpts or demos or I don't mean demos of my music. I mean demos of a feature, right? Little uh, ideas, musical ideas, maybe. And those typically, I haven't heard one where I go like, oh, this is like this. But sometimes, and recently I was playing in, with a specific setup, like I had a chord progression in the background and I was playing in a specific scale on top of it. And I tended to go to a little pattern that I'm sure I heard somewhere. And I was still playing with it. So it was like theme and variation. It was only three notes. So that part was probably from my, you know, coming back from memory. But it's not something where, like, I don't do covers. You know, sometimes I will uh, pick up a melody from somewhere or try to produce something that I've known. But that's less part of the hobby. It's more when I prepare for, you know, performance, which I still do, uh, sometimes with electronic uh, instruments, uh, but sometimes with my saxophone. And, and to me, there's a split between the two. Musicking to electronic musicking specifically to me, exploration, and typically that's not exploration of something that already exists. Okay, it's you seem like you got the perfect balance. You figured it out. Like, all right, you're in the zone. You're focused. You know exactly what you want, how to do it, and you know you, you let life just inspire you. And uh, I know this is uh, like 
it was probably not the easiest thing when you started off. So the question to follow that is, what was your biggest challenge when you first started electronic musicking? Yeah, so at the time, I thought the challenge was access to the tools, right? Uh, especially since at the time it was hard to know what did what, which tool did what. I was dreaming about certain pieces of hardware or software, and I didn't have enough money kind of thing. But it was more into access to not only the money to have it on my own, but to, to be able to do something with it, right? I didn't have the knowledge to make it work. Uh, I think that was, in a way, an illusion because, in retrospect, I, especially uh, after music school, I was doing it for, just for fun, and I didn't have to try to to do something specific. I, and now that I hear what people were creating at the time, I'm like, yeah, I could have done a lot more with what I had. It's just that I didn't find my medium, so to speak, at the time. So I wasn't able to appropriate the technology well enough to understand what I could do with it. And I, I kept seeking something out and I, I wasn't finding it. So that was a big challenge. And now with the internet and unlimited resources everywhere, I'm pretty sure it's a lot easier today and it's a lot easier to connect with other people who might know where to get those resources. Yeah. So it'd be kind of silly to ask me if that's still your challenge today. But the next question would be, what is your current challenge? Yeah, so I would say that my current challenge is to let go of some of my own expectations. Like it's supposed to be about exploration. So why do I want to do something so elaborate sometimes? Like sometimes the simplest things, even if it's a simple melody, even a melody that comes from where, that's a way to start, right? So I tend to complicate things. I'm like that in general. And for playful musicking, I don't know why, but it's still a challenge for me to go back to, to the basics. And, and one is that I really don't like to play four beats per bar with a steady beat or anything like that. That's a lot of electronic musicking, but it's not mine. And I, ah, you know, but once in a while, I will do something like that. And if I share it with other people, they go like, oh, finally. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not doing it for you. It's fine if you're satisfied with that, but it's like, okay, you know, I can do a little bit more of that and then tweak it to, to my liking. Yeah, you know what? I completely understand. Like, I, I produce music as well. And when I do stuff, like, it's usually me. People are like, oh, cool, cool. And when I do something that's a little different, they're like, wow, that's amazing. I'm like, really? I didn't really put much effort. So, like, it's amazing. I'm like, okay. And uh, this is another random thought, but I don't know if this applies for you, but do you have, how many layers do you tend to put like, what is the minimum? What is the maximum of layers do you put of instruments? Yeah, so not many. Yeah, not many. Uh, I typically explore a lot with one source of sound, one instrument, one thing at a time. And sometimes I use that with something else in the background. Like sometimes even just watching uh, something on YouTube, I will play... Uh, with one of my instruments, like if, let's say there's a little uh, tagline at some point and I, I will play along somehow. So I, I, because I'm a sax player and the saxophone only plays one note at a time, uh, I have polyphony envy. I've blogged about that in the past. It's like I envy people who are able to be polyphonic. And these days I'm actually learning to play an instrument because I don't have access to my main instrument. I'm learning to play a little instrument uh, that works really well for polyphony. So 
In this case, there are multiple voices, but typically only one layer, as we would call it, like only multiple sounds at the same time, but from the same instrument. But otherwise, I, I really enjoy so much to play with others. My favorite experiences are always to play with others. And the problem with do, doing things on my own is that I don't have that interaction. I tend to miss it. So I, I try to jam as much as possible with other people. And that's a huge part of my hobby, yeah. So on that note, you actually feed off of other people's energies when you're creating music and you guys inspire each other. Yeah, absolutely. It's a form of communication that I, I remember one time, it was 2 a.m. Uh, at some uh, play, uh, friend's place in Ottawa. And we jammed, well, there was a drummer who's a drummer typically, uh, but also another uh, woman was there. I, I don't even know her name. Uh, I know she's uh, in a relationship with somebody else and she doesn't sing typically, but she was singing with us. And the three of us, so I was playing electronic saxophone, she was singing and the other guy was playing drums. It was like intense friendship. And I'm telling <laughs> you, I don't even know her name, but it felt like true friendship, like true interaction at a deep level that's beyond words. Mu instruments and music just have a way to connect with people and just create that bond that in the moment is inseparable. It's like the world is excluded. There's nothing else happening in the world. You're just deep in in that music. Uh, I feel you. I feel you. I completely feel you. And I know I'm turning like this love and like affectionate moment to a more darker place. But has electronic musicing ever stressed you out? No, actually, it hasn't. <laughs> I figured that as a hobby. Yeah. So performance, I don't get performance anxiety. I've been in a lot of shows. I, I get the energy. That's also stress, technically, right? But uh, it's a different type of stress. It's not one that's detrimental because it's not long term and so on. And but that's for performance. And electronic musicing as a hobby, no, it's not stressful. Even the gear acquisition syndrome, I yeah, I would agree that it qualifies me. Like it, 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 you know, it's a label for part of an ailment I have, but it's not stressful because I still make the right decisions as to what I will buy or not. And I don't feel I can feel an urge to get something, but I don't feel, you know, disappointed or anything like that. And I don't feel that it will prevent me to do something else. It really is an escape, right? So a lot of it uh, is as an escape for other th from other things that I uh, I don't want to think about uh, <laughs> at a certain time, like to, to, to turn my mind to something else. It's still working. It's not to turn my mind off. It's still active. I don't like to be passive. Like watching TV for me is like, uh, I don't know. I don't like it anymore. Even reading a book, like reading text, I, I do a lot of reading, but reading text, because it's so, a book, it's so long, it's so, it's not a conversation, really. Like people talk about it as being a conversation, but it's not, it's not interactive enough. I want something more interactive. So reading and writing, sure, not necessarily by text, but I mean like, you know, forums and, and Facebook groups. Uh, I do a lot of that, but otherwise, like with music, like listening to music, just doing that, I don't do that anymore, but I can do meditation without music or I can do, you know, when I do uh, homebrewing, 
you know, it, it was almost like meditation. It's the only thing I do during that time, but still active, right? Like this conversation, like this podcast. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, you know, just a little interactive. You active know? listening. Exactly. Yeah, active absolutely. listening and active responsiveness as a weird way of saying it. But yes. So back to the actual aspect of, I guess it's kind of still dark, but what are some, I know, I'm sorry, I'm being very dark and negative when you're saying this is a beautiful thing. But uh, what are some misconceptions about people who do electronic musicking? Yeah, so I would say one that I find as a misconception, uh, but other people might disagree, but still, it's about what I think, right? It's that people think it's about doing tracks and releasing them and creating a song, finishing a song and becoming an artist and uh, being known I understand that it's actually just different from what I would call electronic musicking. It's part of it because musicking is any participation, but it's about then it's about performance. Like, well, okay, but that's not what I mean. <laughs> so when I talk about musicking with people, very often they get either puzzled or you know they 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 get curious. Very often they will get some of what I mean, that it's not about producing music. It's not about the product. It's about having fun with music, playing with music, not playing music itself. Another question I had for you was actually, what has electronic musicing taught you in life? The best answer is that it allows me, it taught me to hear the world differently. And I don't even mean listening to the world differently. I actually mean hear the world differently. Uh, I was mentioning field recordings. I, uh, I remember doing that in Chantal Market here in Montreal years ago. I, was, I had headphones on while I was recording what was around me and the noises around me, like the, the kind of conversations and, you know, barking dogs and babies crying and whatever happening. All of these things in a completely different way. So with music in itself, even when it's not field recordings, is that I pay attention in a different way. So that's the listening part. But even just hearing itself, it's like, oh, oh, okay. I didn't <laughs> think to listen here, but that's actually a pretty cool sound. Like it catches me, right? Has it ever happened to you? I know it happens to me a lot, but has it ever happened to you that you listen to sounds and a, a random, like say three notes happen out of like, say glass hitting the floor or anything random, and then you complete the melody in your head? Yeah. There's that, or instead of completing the melody, because, uh, because again, I, I play saxophone as my main instrument, a lot of what I do is responding, right? So it's not, it's kind of a, a counter melody, so to speak. <laughs> and, and that happens when I go to a show, and let's say there's no saxophone, but I, I'm like, there should be sax lines in there. So I hear it in my head, uh, but it can happen with random sounds around me, like, oh, yeah, you know, that would go well with this. Mm -hmm. I do that for songs as well. I'm like, oh, well, what if they added this into a song or this? And like, I'm, I'm not saying the song sounds bad, but I'm saying, wh what if it added on? What would it do? Like just the, the aspect of like imagining like the what if, which is a big aspect in music and musicking and just the creation aspect, the what if and the why are so key in the creation aspect. Yeah, and you make it your own in that case, right? So sometimes... I will listen back to something I heard, a recording I heard years and years ago, and it doesn't sound at all the same as what I remember. And I go like, what happened? Well, 
you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, beauty is in the ear of the beholder as well. Was that I heard something that wasn't there at all, right? It happens a lot. Like I would hear chords behind something. I'm like, oh, yeah, it wasn't there. And sometimes it's just like the sound system is different. Like I remember, I don't drive, but I remember listening to some tracks uh, in someone's car and it doesn't sound the same elsewhere. And many producers and mixers actually, like uh, uh, a lot of mixing is about that kind of thing to make sure that it will play well in the car or uh, on headphones uh, and so on. So there's a little bit of that. I know sometimes it's really the sound quality itself, but a lot of it, I, I know that it's some things that I added to it. So it's making it my own and I'm sure you do the same thing and i'm sure a lot of our listeners do the same thing you're absolutely right i do the exact same thing and it's not even just for creating music it's actually just even my podcast after i'm done editing i usually use my headphones so after i do that i play it on my phone i play it on a speaker i play it with through headphones just to see because there's no perfect system everybody's gonna everybody has different ears with the way they take in sound and also i'm trying to find a, the most neutral sound but it's never perfect but i try to find what works best and it's a challenge but it's fun so for you we've talked about this and i know a lot of people are so interested now and so do you have any word of advice for anybody who might be interested in this hobby yes i do and the simplest way to put it is like just do it there are many <laughs> ways to do it you don't have to buy anything uh there's free software from the geekiest to the easiest that's not a problem. You don't need anything. So the word of advice is don't wait to have the perfect setup because you will never have that. It's the same advice that I gave to podcasters, like a lot of my friends, well, especially 15 years ago or 10 years ago, uh, wanted to do podcasting. But even recently, they were like, oh, yeah, I want to practice this and get, get the best gear and so on. I'm like, uh, no, you start now, you do it, and then you will improve probably, but also it will be satisfying from the start. So don't wait for the perfect setup. Use whatever tool you can find. Uh, for instance, on uh, iPhones, iPads, and Macs, GarageBand is a great way to get started because it's there for free and there's a lot you can do with it. And there have been albums done with it. Uh, as far as I remember, uh, I think, was it Billie Eilish who had done some tracks purely in GarageBand at first or something like that, or maybe Grimes. Like there, there have been uh, albums that have been done through GarageBand. Like it sounds so silly, but you can start with that. And it's basically just putting looks together. Great. That's musicing. And it can be satisfying. It's again, you know, related to misconception. It's not about showing off. And you know what? I completely agree with you. It's the idea that it's not, you don't need the fanciest new tools. It's, even the simplest things, it's what you have. You got to make the best of it. And the simplest things can become so beautiful. And, uh, you know, you got to learn how to walk before you run. And even before that, you need to learn how to crawl or even, you know, get your head up straight because you're a baby. You don't know how to control your head yet. It's just, it's baby steps. That's the concept. You need to learn how to ride your bike on a tricycle before riding. I'm doing a, a bunch of weird analogies right now. I think people yeah, get, the, yeah. get the idea that it's small steps to get to the bigger steps. Yeah. And you can start with voice memos, you know, anything. 
just try things. Speaking of which, I know this is another random question, but have you ever tried one of those applications where it's the the voice lay like the voice over voices to make those like kind of like harmonizing sounds? Yep, 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 absolutely. I, I've been exploring those in many respects. There are some that are, are just silly effects, but because I care so much about polyphony, having different sounds at the same time, the harmony itself, harmonizing, automatic harmonization is actually something I'm like, I still don't have the one tool that I want. Oh, no. So it's a quest. No, but it's a quest that I have. And if I create a plugin at some point that does it, I would be ecstatic. So some of it, it's just the notes themselves are quite important in terms of mm -hmm. harmonizing, right? Because I know enough about the theory for harmonization, but doing the work, I find it tedious and I don't remember everything. And, and so on. So I would like to have a tool for that. Uh, but just having tools, I have multiple tools that do things like these. And they sound good enough, but they're not exactly the kinds of harmonies that I enjoy a lot. Like, I'm one of those people who already... I'm not a hipster because I'm too old for that. I'm 47, <laughs> so I'm not allowed to be a hipster. But uh, in uh, 99, 2000, I did a semester project on uh, a cappella band uh, in Bloomington, Indiana, where I was studying, where you know it, there, there were multiple bands doing a cappella singing, and I really like those harmonies. They're just great in general. Like it, it, it's a specific type of harmonization, similar to barbershop choirs and such, but it's it's evolved even since then. Like modern acapella bands like they became a thing a few years ago partly through glee and all of that but at the time like 20 odd years ago it was already a thing for me in terms of harmonization i would like to be able to use my voice in that way jacob collier has done a lot of stuff with uh, voice harmonies and well, you know he's just an incredible musician it's the kind of effect that i would like to have automatically that would be just insane you know what i completely agree with you i'm all about uh the, like the harmonization of voices and one of my favorite groups is the temptations i know it's not in my era but mm -hmm. the temptations oh my goodness oh no it works yeah <laughs> it works there's something again uh, because you know when i was talking about the subtle things that the ear picks up in this case it's that they're very tight those voices blend really well together you hear that they listen to one another and acoustically, it could be described, right? You could use instrument to say, yeah, this is how they mesh their voices. And there's something even about the filtering effect of you know, opening your mouth in a certain way so that certain frequencies won't be heard the same way. It can get very, very subtle. And in terms of timing and in terms of you know, the intonation, in terms, so it's just intonation uh, which is actually a technical thing in music, right? I don't assume that listeners know what it is, but just intonation is actually something that a piano cannot reproduce. And a lot of the music we hear now is in equal temperament. Equal temperament is an artificial thing. It's not that it sounds bad, it's that it's meant for specific purposes. It's practically very useful, but it's not the same thing as vocal harmonies that are changing the relationship between the notes every single note that you sing and that's what singers do and that's extremely hard to do with a computer it's not impossible but it's very very complicated 
and we're not there yet. There's um, I can't remember. There's a group. I I'm not sure. It's, I think it's, is it Bosnian or somewhere in East uh, East Europe? There's Bulgarian. Bulgarian. Oh my there's goodness. Bulgarian, Bulgarian singing. singing. Yeah. I love that. It's just so. So for people who don't know what it is, go check it out on YouTube. The harmonization of that is beautiful. Oh my goodness. Yeah. There, among francophones, including here in Montreal, obviously, there was Le Mystère des Voix Bulgares, the mystery of Bulgarian voices. And they're not the only ones, all the Balkans. Uh, and not too long ago, in a sample library, I downloaded some uh, Bulgarian singing, but they just called it uh, Balkan. And it's that kind of voice. And part of this is that there's no perceptible vibrato. So the human voice will naturally create vibrato, but when you listen to these, actually it's a straight voice, which is actually pretty hard to, to um, accomplish. But they do it, and it sounds, especially together, like when blends together, all of those voices together. <laughs> yeah. is, you know, it gives me shivers. <laughs> and I'm actually, so my research for the PhD was in ethnomusicology. I was talking about West African music. And for us, in ethnomusicology, it's about this kind of musical diversity is that we know a lot about the world's musics. And most people hear a tiny, tiny, tiny little fraction of what the world's musical diversity is. There's a cool YouTube video about the sounds for uh, the missed opportunity for Avatar, the movie. Ethnomusicologist was a consultant for it, and she was asked for unheard sounds. Uh, but then uh, James Cameron, I might be Canadian, but I can still criticize him, uh, <laughs> wanted it to sound in a way still uh, fitting with the orchestral sounds that he had. So he completely destroyed what made those things unique which is pretty sad because the world is very diverse in terms of music. Most people listen to a number of genres and they go like, oh, my tastes are eclectic. But you get them to listen. It might be Bulgarian uh, singers, but if there's uh, Hockett singing uh, from uh, Central Africa, so Hockett, like one person will sing just one note and the other one will sing another note and they alternate very quickly. And it's a technique that exists in different parts of the world, but it's pretty well known in ethnomusicology as, as a thing. Or even uh, postal workers in Ghana who are whistling while, uh, you know, putting stamps. Those sounds that when you hear them, it's like, yeah, it's different enough. Like it's another sensitivity to sound. It's kind of like also throat singing. Which is something that, like, oh, oh yeah, you didn't expect that would be a type of singing, but you know what? People do it, and it sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah, and there's a whole background for it all around the the, the polar circle. It's partly ritual, but partly games. Part part of it is actually a game. They also have insult games, like they insult one another. But in this case, in throat singing, some of it is like competition and games, and you know, uh, having fun uh, with what you can do. Some of them are animal sounds interpreted with a human voice and it's wonderful it just goes to show that literally anything could be made into music and as long as you know how to do it and give it a try when i say you know how to do it i mean like just give it a try then, or listen to it or listen to exactly like the world has so many different sounds the ears are very fine-tuned like you said and just listen and you'll make some music you'll find something new some cool interesting sounds uh, and now we talked about this at the beginning of the episode, but I'll ask it again. Do you have any social media links, websites, or projects that you would like people to come check out? Yeah, so I mentioned Sith Breath, 
S-Y-N-T-H-B-R-E-A-T-H. Uh, because it's the, the one Twitter account that I use the least. It is the <laughs> one that's very specifically about music. Uh, I use the same um, username on SoundCloud. So I have a little project there. And you can find me. My last name is Enkerli, E-N-K-E-R-L-I. And do feel free to, to uh, ask me questions, to communicate with me. Uh, if, you have, if you need advice, if you need help, you know, I'm there for that as well. That's perfect. I'll put all that information below. And I'm sure, you know, I just got one question for you, you know, why are you awesome? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that because can... we're both Alex's. Ah, that's, that's it. That's why. Yes, it was a rhetorical question. Yeah. Yes, Alex's know these answers uh -huh. automatically. But no, that's perfect. I'll put all that in the uh, in the description below so people can go check that out. And now for the last question, do you have any questions for me about electronic musicking? Who would you think would be a likely candidate for electronic musicking, is there a pattern to the kind of person who's attracted to this, would you think? That's a very interesting question. I, you know what, so my wife and I, so my wife does music as well, but she's more the following by the note. And I'm, I can't read music, I just do it by ear. I can't even play piano. So for me to create something, it takes me a while, but I do like one finger at a time, but I create it. So I don't want to, I love my wife very much. But I would say it's people who like think outside the box because I heard there's a lot of musicians who cannot read music. And I would feel like those who don't know, like to say the general rules, like those who can do both. That's amazing because I would that's like you. You can do both. But I would imagine it's those who have the ability to be the like thinking outside the box aspect. Yeah, I like that answer. That, that's pretty insightful. I would agree. Typically, people who are okay with taking it as a hobby, basically, like this playful aspect of playing with music, it's not the same as people who have been trained in music, typically. <laughs> and it's certainly not the same as people who will then go on stage, typically. I do have some friends who do both, and then we'll call it jamming, right? Or uh, there, there's a group on Facebook called uh, Dollish Jamming. Instead of DAW-less, so uh, digital audio workstation-less, I call it DAW-free because it's the freedom from the digital audio workstation, but jamming with just anything else, basically. So this kind of freedom, yeah, it's thinking outside the box. Something I've noticed, and I'm, I'm sad about it because it's true. So the age range is fine. I would say probably 20 to 50 overall. Ethnicity-wise, you know, you know, there are different people. They don't, and we tend to communicate with one another. We have different styles typically, but the part that really makes me sad is that it's overwhelmingly male, and I kind of understand why. Uh, it's the same thing with a lot of technology, and actually, as far as I've seen from the statistics, there are fewer women getting into technology now, despite all of the efforts, and in a way, because of all the efforts to bring them in. So it's really sad. I want more diversity in terms of gender, certainly, and also internationally, like uh, there's a guy who, uh, these days he's doing something else, uh, but uh, he, he calls himself Afrarak, uh, there's Eurorack about uh, some uh, synthesizers in a specific format from Europe, 
But people in Africa are doing a lot of musicking, and some of it can be with all sorts of electronic means because they have a make-do attitude. It's just that we don't hear much about what happens outside of hyper-industrialized countries like Canada and the U.S. and Germany and, you know, Australia and Japan. No, no, but you're absolutely right. And there's beauty everywhere around the world. And it's, I think, slowly the world is opening up to more world music. But, you know, it's it's a progress thanks to the Internet and YouTube, but uh, it's going to take time. But, yeah, you know, not to disagree. I would say that the world, instead of opening up now, it's more of a cycle. (laughs) So there are different sides uh, or, or different parts of music scenes that are opening up to different things. But I don't like a lot of ethnomusicologists have talked about the standardization of music and there's a lot of that going on in people's tastes there's analysis of that but (laughs) it's hard to say that people's tastes are widening people are curious but it's you need to open your ear which is basically what electronic music king has taught me is to open my ear in a different way so it comes and goes in phases and cycles. And there are some things where people are, you know, going broader and some things that it's much more respected. You know, this might sound really stupid, but you know who might be the best like people for electronic musicking? Children or even babies. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the way that they create yeah. might not make sense to adults, but for them. It's yeah, you know, it qualifies. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there's a lot of projects to to for early music education is typically about reading music and knowing classical music. Uh, in Ottawa, there's music and beyond, and and festivals like that, and they tend to emphasize like you should learn how to play the violin. Well, <laughs> maybe not. Uh, maybe your parents would like you to probably not play drums, but to play something that's softer, especially if they can have headphones. And there's a lot of projects among technologists to create toys and tools that children can use to play with music. There are some like the bleep blocks, I think it's called. And they made a teenage version as well that's uh, dark and, you know, uh, gritty and grungy. Uh, but there's one that's really meant for four-year-olds or something like that. Like there's a lot to do with kids and music. And it's musical awareness that's basically awareness of the sounds around you instead of this is how Bach composed, you know. I don't know about you, but I think my first musical instrument as a kid was that rainbow xylophone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably true for me as well. Like the first one that was taught to me was the recorder. And there's actually an electronic recorder that uh, was on Kickstarter, and I, I uh, pledged for it. Uh, but it's true that the first one was probably a Fisher-Price yeah. <laughs> uh, xylophone uh, in the 70s, you know, because I'm 47. Um, and yeah, and otherwise, all sorts of things that you can bang and, you know, and, and shake and whatever. It's teaching the kids the motor skill aspect, which is a big part of electronic musicing. Absolutely. So yeah, there you have it. Another body with a hobby. Thank you so much, Alex, for just going through all this. I mean, this is such a wonderful experience. I I was kind of like worried, like, oh, I don't want to mess this up at the beginning. And then (laughs) 
you know, because I'm like, oh, I'm not quite sure what it is. But as we went along, the way you explained it just made me appreciate it for what it is. And it sounds amazing. And it kind of made me realize, well, okay, in some way I do it as well. So that's pretty cool. Of course. I can't thank you enough for that. No problem. My pleasure. So if you guys want to learn more about Alex, you can go check him out. I'll put all the information in the description below. And if you'd like to be on my podcast, you can go check out, or no, if you'd like to be on my podcast, you can send me an email at timeforyourhobby at gmail.com. And of course, if you like this podcast and want to leave a review, hey, I'm not going to say no. It's, you know, I enjoy reviews, good or bad, right? You know, it's, it's life. You can review how bald I am. I don't mind. And uh, also, I'm selling merchandise on Redbubble. Yeah, that's the website. And also, if you would like to be a patron, there's that as well. But if you don't want any of those, you can listen to the podcast. It's free. You know, there's no obligation. And uh, yeah, so once again, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. So until the next episode, make some time for your hobby. Take care. Cheers.